You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Meg Wolitzer is the author of Sleepwalking, Hidden Pictures. This is your life. Surrender, Dorothy, the wife, the position, and the 10-year nap. Her latest novel for adults is The Uncoupling. Her newest novel is The Fingertips of Duncan Dorfman. Thank you for joining me, Meg. Thanks, Rick. What made you decide to take a foray into the world of young adult literature? Well, I have two kids, and you read so many books to them uh, over time that it kind of sticks in your head. And now they're freakishly old, and I miss those books, so I just decided to write one. (laughs) Well, I I love the premise of this book, and it seems like you have not left the fantastic behind, and I thank you for that. I think this is a really clever and unique premise because it really speaks to the importance of language itself. Well, it's a book about Scrabble, but it's not for Scrabble people per se. I think it's about words and the beauty of words, which I... I'm very invested in, as all writers are, really. But in the book, uh, my character, my eponymous character, Duncan Dorfman, is a sort of loser kid who discovers that he has an ability to read flat surfaces with his fingertips and know what it says. So, of course, if you have that ability, you'd be drafted by the school Scrabble team to go to the big tournament and win the $10,000. But he's a kind of moral kid, so he has that moral dilemma. You mentioned the fantastical. I mean, in the uncoupling, yes, I used the fantastical in a different way, a spell that uh, falls over a town and makes women stop having sex with men. In this case, again, a light strand of a spell. I mean, I'm never going to write one of those books in which people say, oh, Calix, come into my kingdom. I mean, it's never going to be heavy in that way. It's uh, thank not, you. Yeah, right. <laughs> okay, I, I thought you'd appreciate it. Um, but I thought that you know, a little bit of the fantastical kind of elevates things. It's almost mm-hmm. like putting salt into a sweet dish, you know, brings it out. <laughs> well, I mean, it's an essential part of all our, you know, most basic literature. The first stories we told ourselves were stories of ghosts, gods, and monsters. Yeah, and very fables. much that way. Now, um, one of the things I think that's interesting in this book is that the fact that there is a, a world of Scrabble competition and championships, and this is something many people might go, huh? <laughs> yeah, you know, one thing that you learn about life as you go through it is how many subcultures there are. And of course, the internet has made uh, us much more available of, uh, sorry, the internet has made us much more aware of those things and has made those worlds much more available to people. And I learned some years ago that there was, in fact, a world of kids playing competitive Scrabble. And I learned it in time for my son to go uh, to this championship. And he had a great time. He didn't win, but he and his partner, it's played in partners, uh, did pretty well. And we saw kids from all around the country, kids of all kinds who just loved playing Scrabble. Some were great. Some were really not good at all. Uh, They came from their schools. They came from different states. And I stood there, and I looked around, and I thought, this is great. I mean, it's like the chess world, but not so uh, tense. It's not tense at all. Well, too, what it brings to the picture, as you pointed out, it's about language. It's about words and the beauty of words and language and the the complexity that you can find there. I think language, I I think that falling in love with words is something that kids do. And you could ask a group of kids, what's your favorite word? As I just did yesterday when I was talking to kids in a school, and a lot of them have words that they love. And they don't even know 
maybe what they mean. They're almost answering in a free associative way. When I was a kid, I thought the word, I didn't know what it meant, and this is so sad because you'll hear the word that I thought was so beautiful was carrion, <laughs> dead meat. <laughs> but, but, you know, then later on, I made a joke to him. I made a pun about carrion luggage, you know, <laughs> and which I'm sure a lot of people have made. But, uh, you know, words lead to wordplay. And there's a lot of, I decided that the words in the fingertips of Duncan Dorfman would, in fact, you know, could would be fun for Scrabble players, would teach you something about Scrabble if you wanted to learn that. But also, they had to be intrinsic to the plot. Like, words had to help figure something out. And that was kind of exciting to figure it out. So there are a lot of instances in the book, several really, not a lot, several instances in which um, letters have a sort of misleading meaning and then turn to mean something else and solve a puzzle of, you know, of somebody's birth and solve uh, finding the solution to a missing person, uh, all kinds of stuff. So uh, do they do that in life? I don't know, but they're very, very powerful. It's a little bit of the Ouija board in this. Yes, and of course the Ouija board is pushed by human hands <laughs> as these letters are scrambled up by human hands too. You know, I, I really like the idea of a book whose plot turns on words and letters. That's it has a kind of Escher-esque quality that I think must be pleasing to younger readers as it is just as it to, I don't think you need to be a younger reader to appreciate that all you have, this book all you have to do is like words right. and I think that's pretty likely with people who read books they might like words hey <laughs> I think I would I would really hope so I'm praying so I mean just to give you one thing because it doesn't give anything really away from the book but there's an anagram that somebody had told me many years ago and this is long before uh, the internet existed so I couldn't go on to some anagram site and figure it out but somebody said that there is a perfect anagram for the words roast mules, if you put them together, they made one long word. And I, and I said, well, it must be something really obscure that I don't know. And they said, no, it's a very common word. And I would lie in bed at night and think about this and try to figure it out. And then one day, it popped into my head, and it all came together. And the answer is uh, somersault. Because roast mules and somersault don't, you know, the whole gestalt of those words is different, really. And words can sort of disguise themselves as something else when they're scrambled up. And in what way is that meaningful? You know, it's meaningful in the way maybe that puns are meaningful, the lowest form of humor, people say. I think anagrams, though, are, uh, they're kind of thrilling. It's like the moment in a movie. I mean, my favorite movie is The Lady Vanishes, the Alfred Hitchcock movie. And there's this moment when they're, well, actually, there's letters on a window in that movie, too, uh, this woman disappears off a train, Miss Froy, and uh, the character is positive she was on the train, and everybody else says they'd never seen her, she's not there. But the woman had written her name in the dirty window cause they, to, to spell it, and she'd written Froy. And then much later in the, in the movie, the train goes through a tunnel, and the letters appear, so the woman knows that she's not crazy, that this Miss Froy was on the train, and she must find her. And I see something like that, and I go a little crazy with excitement. So I wanted to kind of put a little of that feeling into the book. Well, you know, finding a summers the word somersault in the words roast mules, it's like a geode, where it's yeah. kind of rough and crumbly right. on the outside. You turn it all around, and, it, and it's this beautiful jewel. Absolutely. There's, there's quite a bit of that in there. 
I can give something away from the book if you want me to. That's no, no. No? Okay. Uh, okay. Let's keep the book All a right. mystery, but we let's talk about creating the characters and the plot. I mean, it can't have been too easy to create a plot and characters around a Scrabble championship that's as compelling as this, because I think you do a really good job. Oh, thank you. I wanted to uh, have characters who kids would remember. I mean, mm-hmm. I was talking to these kids today, and I said, you know, the thing, and I've said this to adults and maybe even said it on your show before, that the thing you remember from books is not plot but character. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody has said that, and I agree with that. Uh and even in novels that you think of as classics, that's it's the outsized characters. We were talking today about Charlotte's Web, mm-hmm. and we were talking about Wilbur and Charlotte and the friendship between them. So friendship between children and among children is something really interesting. One thing that happens to kids is that they fall in together really fast, whereas adults do a kind of very wary pas de deux. You know, mm-hmm. a kids fall in and they become friends. So that seemed to make sense to me that three kids from completely different backgrounds, one is Duncan Dorfman, this kid who sees himself as a failure. He's uh, been raised by a single mother who has no money. The mother works in a superstore. They've just moved to a new town. He's been drafted to go to the Scrabble Club because he has this power of reading things with his fingertips. There's him. There's a girl named April who wants to go to find a boy who she met years ago at a motel pool in that way that only kids can do. You go on vacation with your family, and you meet a kid, and you play together. Then he disappears, and you think there's no way in the world to find him. But she taught him Scrabble, and maybe he'll be there. And then Nate, the third character, uh, his father lost this very young tournament 26 years earlier and had, wants his son to avenge his loss. And the son hates Scrabble. He's been homeschooled so that he can uh, learn Scrabble around the clock. So they each have a different desire. You know, the, there's a wonderful book critic, Laura Miller, who writes for uh, Salon. And she, was, she wrote an essay about uh, the books that she loves and what do they have in common, the novels she loves. And she says she thought that in them... Somebody wants something and somebody does something. And I thought that was really said very well. And that's, I think, a way to write a children's book, at least for me, as well as an adult book. These kids have to have a yearning. They have to have a desire that the reader feels, oh, my God, what if they don't get that? What if they don't get that? But they can't just be reflective the way you could have in an adult novel. I really think you need to respect the antsiness of kids. Uh, So they need to do something. <laughs> Respect the antsiness. That yes. they need to, that sounds like a good T shirt. <laughs> I guess so. Um <laughs> I guess so. With kids of your own, I'm sure you've had been oh in that God. position. Although we always took our kids really early on. We always like aimed a little too high on purpose. Like we would take them to a restaurant that was just a little too stuffy so that they learned that if they were gonna behave like monsters, they would feel maybe if we were lucky a little self conscious. So just to make them you know, just sit a little longer or listen to something, you know, like a page longer than would be ideal allows that to sort of happen a bit. Uh, or maybe you think of that as cruelty. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, we'll ask your kids when we interview oh, them when they write <laughs> yes, their books. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, talk about... Uh, the difference for you as a writer between uh, crafting prose for adults and crafting prose for children. Your prose, for uh, for example, in the uncoupling is really beautiful and, and it's engrossing and poetic and it gets us into characters, but it gets us into these, uh, you know, very adult situations. And that can't, that's got to be a real, you know, stretch for you to, to ratchet all that kind of uh, graphic detail back. Well, 
there's two issues really. There's uh, a language issue and a complexity. You know, the complexity mm-hmm. of language issue, and then there's content. Um, are you asking me about content? Let, well, let's start <laughs> with content. Yeah, this is a sex-free zone. This uh. book. I mean, but you know, I have to say that I, you know, this is a middle grade book really for eight to twelve. Uh, it's been referred to as YA, but I, that's sort of more of a catch-all term. That it's not exact really. Um, YA young adult books often are have lots of sex and drugs in them and, and cutting and all kinds of sort of teenage angsty issues. Mm-hmm. I like to read those books a lot when I was young, too. Uh, this book, I've decided, is like really, really pre-adolescent. Mm-hmm. So it's a world in which only at the very end of the book um, does Duncan Dorfman kind of wistfully realize that this period of his life is going to end. It's going to become more boy-girl soon, and he sees it starting to happen. But it's very free. This is really about the friendship of Mm -hmm. boys and girls. And if they have crush feelings, which they do in this book, because April feels that, why why does she need to meet that boy from the motel pool? She doesn't even really know. And I don't say it outright, and then I don't flash ahead to them in a bed when they're much older, you know, the way I automatically would in my adult writing <laughs> because I think that the I think that um, my motto in as much as I have one and I guess I don't have one but I I think you should really kind of write everything you're thinking about when mm-hmm. you write a book and you can take it out later but you put in what you're thinking about and with this kids book it's a world that's somewhat pure I mean kids feel all kinds of complicated feelings but in this case they're feeling frustrated I mean I have this notion that you have to do the things your parents say. And one of the characters teases another one and says, yes, we're all just like puppets being bossed around by cruel puppeteers. You know, we have to do what our parents say. But that is something that I think is really hard for kids to just sort of not make your own decisions. What if you are in a world where you have to make your own decisions? So it's not, all of this is by way of saying that it's not all that different. It's just that the needs and desires of the characters are really different. And, and as a writer, uh, in addition to respecting the antsiness, I respect um, those distinctions. Now talk about the, the prose itself, and that, because that um, is, a, a less con- is that a less conscious decision for you? I mean, Well, when I wrote the first draft of The Fingertips of Duncan Dorfman, I, I wrote it pretty much the way I wrote The Uncoupling. I think it was way too lyrical. Mm. And then I looked at it, and I tried to imagine a kid <laughs> saying, Mother, listen to this line. You know, and it just it didn't make sense. It just wasn't going to happen. It was <laughs> like, you know, she uses language so well. You know, I don't think that they were going to say that. And it doesn't mean that I should therefore be less interested in language. I mean, I'm really interested in language. But it taught me something about being succinct and about maybe um, – not always having to linger on the image. Maybe your reader, if your reader's um, a kid, really wants to know, is so drawn in because you've created this character that they, they want to see what's happening next. And you need to give them that. And that it almost can seem like too much delayed gratification not to do that, which meant that I was doing a lot of editing. And it was kind of freeing. I thought, oh, I can say this uh, you know, in fewer words. I can say this more uh, in a more straightforward way. And maybe that will affect my novels, too. Hmm. That's interesting. You know, um, it strikes me, too, that uh, you uh, might have a, a similar effect with the plot because, you know, the, the plot for this book uh, is is really nice. It's in, It's 
enjoyable, but it's you know not as quite as twisty or as complex as as your adult novels. Do you think the as you wrote out the the plot for this novel, did you um, when you wrote this, did you uh, just start at word one and kind of say, okay, it's young adult, bang, go, or did you have some real idea? I had more of an idea. I mean, I knew. Uh, here's what I knew: three kids. They each want something. I knew. Uh, I really liked the idea of having Nate have a father who had lost the tournament, so that he wanted his kid to live, you know, for him, mm-hmm. and the frustration and anger that a kid would feel with that. And I felt that I wanted to put a girl in there very much because so me- so much competitive life is male dominated. Mm-hmm. You know, the chess world, which I'm. I watched a documentary about Bobby Fischer and. Uh, you know, who in scary. addition to just being crazy and scary. Uh, but even that fabulous book and film, Searching for Bobby Fischer, mm-hmm. it's a world really very much sort of run by males. And what is that about? Is it that women and girls don't have the ability or do they not have the interest in competing in that all or nothing way? And I wanted to put a girl in who really did want to play very, very seriously. So I knew that and... Um, then I didn't know where they would go or how they would interact. And then, as I did that, a plot coalesced, as it tends to do. You know, I really like the way that uh, Duncan's power um, get ca- causes, you know, proves to be a double-edged sword for him. And I think that you handle that very well. And I'm wondering, um, when you were creating this, did you, you know, was was there a side of you who wanted to make Duncan kind of like... <laughs> Like an evil spider overlord, or oh, I would be so bad at creating an evil spider overlord. I mean, this is like my this. I like do I can do magic, like, but it's like, it's like one uh, percent milk. You know, it's like it's got that thin, <laughs> thin quality. So I think that to call it a fantasy is pushing it a oh. little bit. Yeah, I feel that there is um, quite a lot of strangeness and mysteriousness in everyday life. So I'm kind of almost trying to point that out too because all kids, I believe, and all people have some odd little talent. Mm -hmm. And his fingertips, which seems like a huge deal at the beginning and helps him go to the tournament, and I won't say whether they win or lose, but um, that too is just another kind of thing. Like all kinds of kids have different strange talents and powers and things that they don't even really know that they can do. So you're, and well, I I understand that. I kind of like that vision of people as all of us have a kind of a a, a subtle superpowers, as it were. That's right. I mean, this is a book about a kid with Scrabble superpowers. And I like that because it seems like a real oxymoron. (laughs) Scrabble superpower. That's, I mean, you know, it's just sort of like, it seems like putting you know, <laughs> sort of like putting danger or something like <laughs> the two words that really don't go together. Now, uh, uh, I really like too. You know, in this book, you know, you you also have adult characters, and, and I think they're really important and well handled. So, talk about creating the balance in the prose and in the story between you know the parts the adult characters play and the and the kids, because you're an adult, and and I'm wondering if you had it, found yourself deciding, well, I, what I'd really like to be the story about is the single mother and, and this. Well, you know, I think I probably have more adult action in here than uh, a lot of kids' books have because mm-hmm. of that very thing, because I write for adults. 
the really classic children's books, the adults are gone. They're dead. They're gone. They're negligent. They're not around. Um, I think probably the less adults in a children's book, the better in a way. But I did need some adults around the edges. Yeah, I mean, he has a single mother who's very neurotic and, and um, is always worried about him. But she has a reason to worry about him that we don't really know at the beginning of the book. And Nate's father, who you know, just sort of can't bear having lost the Scrabble tournament. But the adults seem unreasonable mm -hmm. to the kids. You know, the adults are irritating to the kids. It's The action is with the kids. It's like the Peanuts gang, you know. <laughs> the action is with, right, 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 right. Yeah, the, that was so great, the teacher. I love that so much because that's really, you know, what adults are and should be perhaps relegated to. Do kids never get to have their own life? I remember early on when I when I had my first child, uh, a friend was letting her kid watch like so much TV. And I remarked on this and she said to me, you know, I believe that it's like the only time that they can have their own cohort. Like they're really removed from us. They're absorbed in this world. And I want to allow that to happen. And I And I understood that. We feel that we have to sort of involve ourselves in every aspect of our kids' lives. And the world of a, a gang of kids, which this does become in this novel, is a world that's, you know, independent. And I think that in and of itself is, a, you know, I hate to say it, a teachable moment. <laughs> As you were crafting this book, did you, I mean, you, you bring up that term, and I think that there are some nice denouements in here and a lot of very, you know, and stuff that makes you think um, as a, you know, about words and about language. Uh, how much of that came out in the first draft and how much of that did you go back and say, well, wait, I want to explore this a little bit more because I think this is going to be fun for the kids to... to One thing that I did in the second draft was... Um, Make it a little bit more of an outdoor book. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was like a really indoor book, like <laughs> indoor voices. You know, it was like I didn't want it to be a book for shut-ins, for kids who lie like odalisks playing with tiles. You know, it wasn't like that at all. I didn't mean for it to be that way. But I realized that, uh, you know, I work all the time, and I'm, like, home writing so much of the time. But these kids are learning. They're in school, but they're also out in the world. And... I I put in a big um, scene where Duncan has, almost has a terrible skateboard accident because he's the kind of kid who would never go on a skateboard. And I, I elevated that in the second draft, and I made it a little more dangerous. And I remember, actually, since I'm here in San Francisco, when I read that wonderful memoir, Oh, the Glory of It All, by Sean Wilsey. I don't know if you ever read that. It mm -hmm. was terrific. And a big scene takes place in San Francisco. And he goes on a skateboard down San Francisco Hills, and it almost dies. It was like the most wild chase, and he ends up, like, lying on his back under a car <laughs> on a skateboard, you know, on his back on a skateboard. Now, mine was nothing like that. But I remember reading this because I had never, of course, had an experience remotely like that, and I wanted to push myself a little bit to have it be a little more physical than I would otherwise. Well, one of the things that you know, um, this that makes this book uh, so so entertaining, you know, for adults, is that kind of the the way you keep the the physical plot and the uh, the word plot going, going back and forth between that and, and the kind of echoes. And uh, I'm wondering, 
you know, how much of that you found in the language and in the Scrabble tiles and how much of that came out of just the characters? When you're writing, at least in my experience, you start to solve problems right and left. Oh, I see. You know, it really, it really happens. When you get into the swing of it, you come upon, it's like you come upon a series of little doors and each one swings open and you're like, whoa, it's like, it's like a video game where one of those driving games where you kind of mow down a key and then a <laughs> new road opens up, you know? I mean, I've tried these things when we've been on vacations to junkie motels with pools where you meet kids and I, it's tremendously exciting that all kinds of obstacles come up. You say, well, now that I've given her this new friend, how is she going to find him again? Oh, I see. And one thing leads to another. Your brain goes into um, a different place. Somebody said recently that the problems that arise are, are like a solution to something else. And it really has this sort of icky um, sounding, uh, you know, Wizard of Oz, you had to find out for yourself notion. But really when you're writing if you set certain kinds of puzzles for yourself in the book you're able to solve them it's like you knew the answer you knew you didn't know you knew the answer but they were there i can't really say it was like i remember once in college i borrowed the the room of a friend because she had a single and i wanted to do some writing on my own and then right before she was going to come back i lost the key to her room i just felt sick i didn't know what i was going to do and I went to sleep and I dreamed where the key was. And of course it was there. And it's sort of like that with writing. You dream where the key is, you find the solution. And in this case, it's so much fun because it involves words. You know, Stephen Sondheim, in addition to his amazing talent in music, um, is also a, a puzzle maker, a crossword puzzle maker. And he, uh, Made, he wrote the film The Last of Sheila. I don't know if you ever saw that. Oh, you, I remember that. That's yeah, an old 1970s old mystery. 1970s TV mystery with Diane Cannon. Yeah, people I like, like that. that. Movie. Maybe James Coco. Even uh -huh. names that you haven't heard anyone say on radio in 30 years. And it hit, the plot hinged on something really clever, and I can give it away because it's really pretty obscure. Everyone was sort of on a boat or on a vacation, and there was they were there for a reason that they didn't understand. It was kind of classic Agatha Christie style. And they'd all been get labeled something or other for their crimes. And it spelled out the last of Sheila, which was, I guess, the name of the boat. And um, one of them was called a little child molester. And somebody realizes in it, that little, what is that doing in there? Why isn't he just called child molester? If you're having a child, you don't have to say little child. And that there had been some tampering with the letters in that last of, you know, so that that L was not meant to be there. I can't remember what it signified, but that's the kind of stuff I love. And I realized that there was going to be a big, big anagram that was going to solve something really huge. And I think it's because I was raised on and admire that kind of wordplay that, that Sondheim did. I hope this is not going to be the last we'll see of Duncan. Well, the sequel issue is is a tricky one. People say to adult novelists, um, have you thought about writing a sequel? And we very politely say no. But uh, I'm not sure yet. There's something about a standalone book that mm -hmm. really makes you feel you can sort of treasure it in some way. I mean, the idea of, you know, Charlotte's Daughter's Web sounds... <laughs> 
bad to me because remember, you know, she. It's like he leaves that open. E. B. White. The book ends with Charlotte's babies being born and flying off in separate directions, and Wilbur's crying because the little spiders. Charlotte dies, and the little spiders are going off. And you could easily follow one called Philomena, but so good that he didn't. Not mm. to say that my book is a classic or ever will be, but um, I love these characters, and I almost like leaving them where they are at the end of a book. It's sort of like if you imagine that the world of a novel isn't infinite, but it's more like the way it's sort of pictured in, if you saw the film The Truman Show, that there's almost mm-hmm. like a clear glass wall. And if you go far enough, you'll come to the end of that. And that characters live inside that. Mm. Are you gonna? Are you interested in writing uh, more novels in, in young adult vein? Yeah, I actually have a two book deal, so. Uh, I could say no, but they're gonna. The lawyers will come after me. Yes, in fact, I'm trying to figure out uh, what to do about the second one now. If I want to do something for this age range, or maybe a little older, and um, I wondered about doing some really dark girls book because mm. I have a lot of sides. I mean, I have this sort of nerdy Scrabble side. I love Scrabble. I mean, I'm a, I always grew up playing it with my mother. I think it's a perfect game. I, I will. Uh, I gave a reading yesterday, and a woman traveled an hour to play Scrabble with me at it. Um, <laughs> and I was so happy, but I would do that too. I, Each game in Scrabble is completely different. It's mm-hmm. a, you know, it's not as pure as, say, chess because there is luck in it, really. You can draw a terrible rack and there's nothing you can do about it. But um, there's still skill. You got a terrible skill, rack. You got to make the skill, best of your best. And as my grandmother would say, a poor workman blames his tools. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you can blame your tunnels forever, but you need to be a smart player. I think it may have something to do next time, not so much with words, but something else. And uh, I'm wondering, were you working on another adult novel while you wrote this at the same time, or are well, you doing Actually, I was working on the uncoupling at the same time. This just, oh. they didn't want these to come out at the same time because that was too much to deal with at once. So mm. this um, took a little longer just to come out. So I was working on the uncoupling. I was editing them both. It was a wild experience. Really? Now, that's very interesting because the uncoupling is such a, a beautiful and dense and lyrical and very adult book. Well, you have to wear different hats. I mean, you just, but they're not, you know, you're not, they're not even that different. It's not like by day I'm a doctor, by night I'm a stripper. You know, they're not like that different. Um, I think that, again, it's about language, story, character, imperative. Somebody has to want something and somebody has to do something. What you choose to do with the language, you try to picture your reader. I mean, I don't ever want to tailor anything to what I think, you know, uh, readers want these days because it would be all vampire all the time I guess but I'm not that save way save us please. save us yes and please do not write a vampire novel. I'll never write a vampire novel <laughs> I never never will but it was um it was pretty different but it was very enjoyable to kind of leave one and say okay now you want to be a little more straightforward but they both I had to believe it in both instances I had to care about it so you do this on the same day yeah Wow, <laughs> morning or night was was there was one allocated to one time zone um, and one to another? Yeah, I wouldn't really go back and forth. It's not like you know Bobby Fisher playing nine games of chess. <laughs> I would um, kind of like mornings were the uncoupling because mm-hmm. I'm really I I like when I'm writing and need that kind of unbelievable concentration. I need to feel that everybody else is asleep and that I'm going to get really total total silence and concentration. Whereas I could work on Duncan Dorfman when 
the kids were around. It even was a little bit inspiring. You know, mm. I would see them and, and kind of feel the pleasure of writing a book for young readers. I've been speaking with Meg Wolitzer. Her new book is The Fingertips of Duncan Dorfman. Thank you for joining me, Meg. Thanks, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.